on today's show, it's been one year since the announcement of more than 200 unmarked graves in Kamloops. Despite the push for school safety policies after the Texas shooting, research shows that might not do much. And we'll talk with Ari Golkind about the Supreme Court decision to say that you cannot deny parole to people convicted of mass murder in Canada. It has been one year to the day since it was announced that 215 unmarked graves had been discovered at the site of a former residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. As you know, that launched a whole new movement in this country, and it reinvigorated the conversation around reconciliation, and and it forced a lot of Canadians to reckon with a troubling and now undeniable past. Well, today's a good time to pause and reflect on where we've come since that day one year ago. And where we still have to go. So to help us figure all that out, we're going to chat now with Keisha Supernot, who's director of the Institute of Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology at the University of Alberta. Keisha, thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, the the whole conversation around reconciliation really shifted uh, a year ago in a big way. I think uh, more than anything, any other incident in sort of, you know, grabbing headlines and jarring Canadians. Um it really did change the way we view this entire situation, didn't it? It really did. It had a big impact both nationally but also internationally in a way that we haven't really seen before, I don't think. Um, it, at, the way we view it then, was it, I think it was a first step, certainly for me. It, it changed my perception of the discussion around residential schools. And, um, and, and, and the big takeaway for me was the fact that this wasn't new to so many Canadians. If you spoke to people in Indigenous communities, they've been talking about this for generations. This wasn't a surprise. They knew this. Uh, we just didn't listen at the time. Um, did, has that changed? Are, are, are people listening more now and, and, and have better recognition of, of what's always been known? I think this is probably the biggest shift that I've seen, which is that people are listening differently, and especially people who were shocked at those initial findings and then the subsequent uh, release of information of work that had, in many cases, been going on for years. There's suddenly this awareness of, oh, wait a minute, this is a very serious part of this this history is not just about the survivors and the abuses that they faced, but it's also about the children who did not survive and are not around to tell their their stories and, and their experiences in these uh, institutions. And this discovery in Kamloops was just the first uh, of many. There's been more since then, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, there's both been more since, but there's also Before. been information made pu- public and uh, brought to people's attention that had been, in some cases, ongoing for a decade. But for a variety of reasons, it wasn't getting the same kind of attention or the nations weren't at a position where they were wanting to bring this to the public in the same way. Um, a question that I always get, and I've already got it twice on the text line, whenever we talk about this is, you keep calling them unmarked graves. We have no proof that they're unmarked graves. Why don't we know more? It's been a year. We're still calling it anomalies. Help me... Help me come up with how I, I mean, I know that you must hear this question all the time as well. This is the work that you do. Um, What is the situation around anomalies, unmarked graves, and what we know about what is there? Yes, this is an important question. I think in the initial reporting of a lot of the, the findings from Kamloops, there was a lot of misinformation that was reported. These are potential unmarked graves, meaning that we see Uh, things in the ground penetrating radar that we use that 
look like graves in other contexts. So we say, okay, this is what a grave looks like in a known graveyard nearby, and this is the very similar kinds of patterns that we see in the ground-penetrating radar. Uh, and I think one of the challenges is that there's a sense of, okay, well, we do this, why are we not just going in then and investigating and digging them up? Mm-hmm. It's not actually a simple process to do that, first of all. And it's also not an easy process for communities to engage in. Can you imagine if it were your, uh, you know, a child in your family from, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, and someone said, well, we want you to dig it up and show us the, the bones in order to make sure that that's an unmarked grave. That's an extremely painful thing to ask someone to do. Some nations are going to be going down that path. I think we will see that. But many nations just want to be able to mark commemorate and acknowledge the possible presence of those graves and to be able to do that healing for their community. So it's not something we can do overnight. It's not something that necessarily all communities are are walking down that particular path either. And ultimately, that's the choice that, you know, do you disturb them or do you, I mean, and that's the choice that those communities will make and, and that needs to be respected. Um, and then the other question is, just to clarify, and you, and you touched on it briefly, when you're talking about the quote unquote anomalies and why we're calling them unmarked graves, because there's people who say you don't even know what they are. It's a pretty clear indication of what they are. And, and the other thing, and again, Keisha, that's important here, is it's just confirmation of what we already knew, right? Exactly. And in many cases, what we see is there's knowledge within the community saying there's graves here. And I have been in many communities where there are places where there are generally known to be graves, but there's nothing to indicate that they're there. Now, it doesn't mean that there wasn't when they were first put in, but there's lots of reasons why things like wooden crosses or fences or other things get, you know, burned, get leveled in some cases. So it's, we're looking at patterns, first of all. So you find two, so it's actually 200 anomalies. It was corrected in Kamloops. And if you're looking for patterns as well, if you're seeing rows of anomalies that have the right size, shape, and depth, there's not that many other things that they likely are. And we can eliminate a whole bunch of other options, tree roots or metal pipes or rocks. We know what those look like in ground penetrating radar. This is not what we're seeing here. Um, the other question, and, um, and people saying, okay, well, even if they are, unmarked graves doesn't mean these kids were murdered or but that's not the point either the fact of the matter is in many of these cases um the kids that are in these unmarked graves their families didn't even know that that's where they ended up or that they had died i mean that that's part of the process too right that that reclamation exactly and the there's a sense of like well if they weren't murdered then why why is it such a big deal but these children were forcibly taken from their families sometimes by the police And then they die at the school. Many parents were never notified, never given the opportunity to bring them home and didn't even perhaps know where they were buried at any point. And many of these children, even if they died, say, of disease or neglect, it was from the conditions in the school. And we have archival records of people who visited these schools talking about the horrific sort of sanitation and lack of food. And like these children, you know, they may have died if they've been in their home communities, but they were much more likely to die having gone to these, been forced to go to these schools, right? And this is what's horrific about the whole thing. Whether or not they die by violence or not, that is not the point. Um, Keisha, in the year the, since this announcement was made, one year now, um, have, have we have we gone far enough? Have we Have we learned enough? I mean, have we lost momentum? Just how would you sum up the year that's passed since this announcement? 
I think this is a really important question. I think there has been a lot of important momentum that has been gained in that many more First Nations uh, communities are taking the lead to conduct investigations around residential school landscapes to try to find the unmarked graves. And they finally are having more resources uh, to do so with a commitment of funding uh, and an increased sort of um, focus on this as a, as a major challenge nationally. So I think there is momentum on that front. What I have seen, though, is especially in the past few months, is a significant rise in trying to downplay the impact of the, the news. And it's being framed as like, well, we don't actually know anything. It's like, well, we there's a lot that is known. And um, framing framing this as, well, none of this, we don't actually know anything about this, is really actually harmful um, because it is casting doubt on the knowledge and experiences of people who attended these schools or the knowledge passed down in their families. So I, I do worry that uh, we are losing a fair bit of um, some of the goodwill that was in place last year and some of the attention that was being placed on this. And people are like, well, was it really that bad? That is really worrying to me. It was. And let's not lose sight of how horrible these institutions were and how much harm they have done. And in many ways, intergenerationally continue to do in Indigenous communities. Maybe you can help me. And I'm asking you to put your, your yourself in the shoes of somebody else, but uh, you deal with this. Why is that initial response from so many people? And I'm seeing it now, Keisha, on the text line. People mm-hmm. just, like you say, casting doubt. Why? Are, why? What, what is the... What is the the need to react in terms of this isn't true, this can't be, you're making... What, like, what is the benefit? I don't understand why. I mean, I think this is a very uh, interesting question, and I'll provide my, my perspective on this, and, and there are others certainly who've thought about this as well. I think the last year has, for some folks, fundamentally challenged their understanding of what it means to be Canadian. This idea that in this country, there was a genocide that was carried out over a number of decades that was deliberately designed to, you know, in the words, in the words of our founding prime minister, kill the Indian, save right. the man. Yeah. Right? This is literally part of the policy yeah. embedded into the nation of Canada. But many Canadians, it's really, there's a dissonance to that, what we call a cognitive dissonance. They cannot reconcile that with their idea of Canada as this multicultural, progressive, you know, country. And I think there's two ways you respond to that. One is you have to face that fact, and the other is you try to find ways to downplay it. Well, it can't have been that bad. It really wasn't, you know, it was good intentioned, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But that is to sort of make yourself feel better, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just, it, it, I can't wrap my head around it. So wh- where do we need to go from here, Keisha? We've talked a lot about it over the course of the past year, not nearly as much over the past six months as we did the first six months, though. I mean, that's just being honest. Where do we need to go in the next year? I think we need to uh, continue to support nations walk down this journey and listen carefully and closely. So when announcements are made, when uh, additional nations are coming forward with the results of their investigation, not just to scroll past, not just to be like, oh, just another one of these. Like It is an ongoing uh, issue. And for me, the reason that this is so important is if we want to build a better future Mm -hmm. in this nation, then we need to understand that the, the legacy of these institutions and related ones still are happening today, and that all many of the issues that people associate with in Indigenous communities, you can directly draw a line to the harm done by these institutions. And that's all of our responsibility. 
And so I feel like we need to continue to pay attention and to listen and to support and to refute those who are trying to say, well, it really wasn't that bad. It was absolutely horrific. And we need to remember that um, as we continue forward. Keisha, great message. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You bet. That's Keisha Supernot, who is director of the Institute of Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology at University of Alberta. Lots of uh, different story angles, as there always is in the wake of the latest, um, well, it's not the latest, there's probably been some sense, but the latest mass shooting to grab headlines around the world. And of course, that's the one from um, Uvalde in Texas at the elementary school that happened earlier this week. 19 children, uh, grades two, three, and four, uh, gunned down, slaughtered in their classroom. And and as as we talked about yesterday, there's... The sad reality is when it comes to these kinds of incidents, especially these major ones, there's a pattern to what happens in the days following. And it's the same thing that happens over and over again, which is why a lot of people say, don't be surprised when the next one happens, because that's how it works. And it has going back to 1999 and beyond, as we'll find out in a moment. Uh, with Columbine. That's the one that most of us remember first. Um, but, you know, you know what happens. Uh, a lot of people plead with politicians to bring in some sort of quote-unquote common-sense gun control. Um, then there's the opposition saying, no, 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 we need more good guys with guns. Good guys with guns is what the answer is here. That'll stop this. Um, so let's arm the teachers. Um, other people saying, no, no, we need to quote-unquote harden the target. Think about that for a moment. That's just acknowledging that schools are targets. We need to harden the target, but you'll hear that. Um, Ted Cruz talking about the door was unlocked. You can't have an unlocked door at a school. We know, I mean, so there's all kinds of different arguments about what to do and what the best way to handle this is. Um, Now, we don't have to guess. That's the thing. There's all kinds of real-world data about how these things come about, how they've developed, how they've changed, if they've changed, and where we are now. And one of the most often cited resources on school shootings is actually the creation of our next guest. It's really, really interesting. Uh, David Reedman joins us now. He's the lead researcher at the K-12 School Shooting Database at the Naval Postgraduate School Center for Homeland Defense and Security. David, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And and your work around this goes back, I mean, back to the 1970s, right? We often think of this as a relatively new phenomenon, but it's not. No, this is, is not a new phenomenon at all, unfortunately. Uh, my work actually started after the Parkland shooting in Florida in 2018. And I was working with a, a colleague at the Naval Postgraduate School um, who's a forensic psychologist And we were trying to come up with a better threat assessment tool uh, that would have potentially stopped that shooting at Parkland. And once we sketched out uh, a framework for this tool, we wanted to look at previous shootings to see which ones it would have stopped. And that's when we discovered that there was not a source of information on prior school shootings. Uh, So we just started assembling a list of incidents and adding details to that list. And before we knew it, uh, we'd actually created a unique resource, and the Center for Homeland Defense and Security said, let's put this on the website uh, and see where it goes. Um, And how exhaustive is it? Like, it goes back decades, and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of incidents. Yeah, it's it's now um, over 2,050 incidents uh, from 1970 to present. 
And those incidents from 1970 to 2018 um, were populated by uh, going through news reports, uh, other lists of, of school shooting incidents and mass shootings, and then newspaper archives. So there are probably many more than those 2,000, uh, because if the, if the newspaper, you know, didn't get archived, um, you know, some of the records of these incidents from the, the 1970s and 80s may have been lost forever. So, of course, you know, to, to understand a problem, you need to have the data. That's whatever, you know, that's one of the understandings we have with any of these sort of societal issues. So you've accumulated so much data here. What can we start to infer, uh, you know, as we track this over the course of time and, and, and see how, if there's trends, or, what, what can we infer from the work that you've done? I think one of the, the first pieces is just looking at the commonalities across uh, incidents, because what is easy to do is be kind of paralyzed with grief and shock and say, uh, these innocent children were killed in this elementary school. How could something like this ever happen? But when we look back at history, we see that there were significant attacks at elementary schools in 1979 and 1984 and 1988 and 1989 and 2006 and 2012 and 2016. And what we can do is separate the commonalities of those incidents from all of the current rhetoric that happens around things. So, for example, in 1979, there were no violent video games. There was no social media. Um, the Internet really hadn't even been invented. Yet a very similar incident occurred in an elementary school. So that allows us to take out some of the noise and the extraneous factors and kind of get at the heart of the issue. And as you said, your work sort of started around preventing after Parkland. What could have prevented Parkland? Is there anything in the research or the data that you've seen that does indicate a way that this can be prevented in the future? Yes, uh, I think that, that that's the opportunity that we really have to seize from this attack at Rapp Elementary School. So there's a consistent pattern in mass school shooters and then also mass public shooters um, where it is a person who is experiencing a crisis. And this is not to be confused with a diagnosed mental illness or somebody who's paranoid schizophrenic. It's a person who is in a, a period of crisis and elements of it could be things like dropping out of school, abruptly ending a relationship, uh, quitting or being fired from a job or poor job performance. And then a person is in a state where they are degrading, they begin making violent threats, they start making specific plans around violence, and then they need to have access to a weapon. And that gives us an opportunity. It gives friends, family, coworkers, relatives, an opportunity to see that these elements are coming together and find a positive intervention, find a professional resource that can help that person before their behavior escalates to the point of mass violence. Um, so the warning signs are there, basically, is what you're saying. There, there, are, there are ways to anticipate this, and we, we can recognize them based on what we've seen in incident after incident after incident. Yeah, and I mean, just from the very initial information that's coming out from Texas, uh, there were some 
you know, very ominous yeah. social media messages. There were direct social media messages. Uh, the student had dropped out of school. There was some history of bullying. There was some history of self-harm. Um, the friends interviewed said that they were, uh, you know, very concerned for this person's well-being. And all of those pieces show that people realized there was a problem, but they were lacking education to know that those are signs um, that mass violence may be imminent. And they did not know what resources were available to them to help intervene before that person committed the the mass violence. Um, I think a lot of us are under the assumption that they're increasing in frequency. Is, is that borne out by your research? I mean, are we seeing more of these people ending up in crisis and, and acting out this way? Is it happening more than it has before? In terms of mass public shootings in, in all places you know, carried out outside of schools, it appears that the rate of that has been significantly increasing. Okay. Um, with, with school shootings, uh, they are still relatively infrequent with the, these indiscriminate attacks happening about 90 times over 50 years. Uh, so with such a small sample, it's, it's very difficult to say whether something is increasing or not. Fascinating, fascinating information. David, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you so much for, happening, uh, for having me and go Lightning. Weeks ago, I can't remember exactly. Was it a week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? All the days sort of run together after a while. But we got into a lot of discussions around the Supreme Court ruling saying that uh, extreme intoxication could indeed be used as a defense in cases of violent crime. For, uh, you know, originally they had said no, it can't. Um, government put in a law, and the Supreme Court said that law is unconstitutional. Another ruling today that has a lot of you on the text line already uh, a little puzzled, a little concerned, and a little upset. Uh, the Supreme Court today said that Alexandre Bissonnette. Uh, the guy who went on a deadly shooting spree at a Quebec City mosque a few years back, can indeed apply for parole after he served 25 years behind bars. Um, the court today decided that a 2011 criminal code provision that says to a judge, hey, in the event of multiple murders, you can impose life sentence and parole ineligibility consecutively, one after the other, basically eliminating the chance for parole or release in mass murders, um, they deemed that that law from 2011 is unconstitutional. So basically that means you cannot put somebody in jail and throw away the key, to put it in simplest terms. They have to have uh, a shot at release. How realistic it might be, I don't know. It's another discussion, but let's break it down um, with our legal consultant, uh, cr- criminal defense lawyer, legal commentator, Ari Goldkind. Ari, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Great to be on with you both. Did I, did I sum this up correctly, Ari, in terms of, you know, this is basically saying you can't just put somebody away and forget about them? You know, Shay, you did because this is such a fascinating case because it's not legalese, okay? This touches a core. I actually think, Shay, this is one of the more important decisions in Canadian history. That's saying a lot, okay? Okay. Because it goes to the heart of what is each life worth? How does the criminal justice system treat the fact that if, you know, let's look at the school shooting in Texas, okay? Yeah. I can guarantee you that if that piece of garbage wasn't killed, every single life he took would have added to his sentence, which would have added up to 1,472 years, okay? Yep. We don't do that in Canada. In 2011, as you very ably pointed out, the Harper government 
And remind me to tell you about the Trudeau government, because that's the interesting part of this. Okay. The Harper government in 2011 says for Paul Bernardo types, for mosque shooting types, for Alec Manassian types who go down Young Street in Toronto and mow over half the city and kill them, how is it that each life isn't worth a separate mathematical parole ineligibility period? The sentence is always life. Right. So one death is 25, two deaths should be 50. Makes sense. Correct. Correct. And here's why I'm going to get to Trudeau in a moment, but I'm going to give you this answer because I'm going to give it to you this way. As a political pundit and Canadian citizen, I absolutely detest the Supreme Court's decision today. I don't like the reasoning. I don't think they weigh the the value of life and victims and the loved ones and relatives of people killed, let alone the people killed who are six feet under, rolling in their graves or, quite frankly, up in heaven, looking down at the Supreme Court and going, what is wrong with the nine of you? Yeah. Okay? Yeah. But as a criminal defense lawyer and lawyer, the decision actually makes complete sense, and it will outrage Twitter. And to use your introduction of TikTok, my belief is that if TikTok or Twitter is outraged about something the courts do, the courts are probably on to something. Here's why. Harper says each life is worth something. I understand that. makes completely sense, especially if you view the courts as reflecting the moral blameworthiness and the values of Canadians. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Trudeau government, which is about as far left as left leaning as any sort of semi center left or pretend to be just left of center party in history, never interferes with this. This is the point of this. The Trudeau government doesn't do away with this ever. Okay. Mm-hmm. That tells you that parliament, as it then was, and parliament as it was under our new fearless leader of the last six years, thought that this was good law, okay? The Supreme Court came along today, and I'm going to really keep it as simple as I can and then take whatever questions you or outraged people have, because I understand that outrage. Yeah. Parliament has said, look, ladies and gentlemen, the moral argument that each life is worth double, triple, if you take three, you shouldn't be able to apply for 75. The Supreme Court says, that's not our battle. The moral part of that argument is a different form for a different day, okay? Yeah. What the Supreme Court says is this. It is cruel and unusual punishment and an affront to a killer's dignity. I have some problems with those terms, by the way. But cruel and unusual punishment and an affront to a serial killer's dignity that they don't have some tiny ray of light, tiny, minuscule. Faint hope, right? Faint hope. Yeah, and that's the term in law, but this goes even before, because here's why what I'm going to say should make people sort of get the coffee that they spit out when they saw the decision to get it sort of back in their mouth in slow motion. The Supreme Court says, look, between you and I, and I'm doing a wink, wink, nudge, nudge here, because you read the very long decision, but it really comes down to five or six lines for me. I think paragraph 142 is actually the one that jumped out to me, if I'm remembering it. The long and the short of it is this. We don't want to have, and I'm going to be silly here for a minute, and you're going to get the point, but I'm going to be intentionally silly. You know how you watch A&E or the Discovery Channel and you watch all these shows about life at Rikers? Yes, yep. Where all these lifers are stabbing each other, all the gangs are murdering each other, slitting throats and slitting guards' throats? Yep, yep. That is literally the argument the Supreme Court picks up, which says if you're going to put a Bissonette, a Bernardo, a Manassian in, into the penitentiary, 
And they know that no matter what counseling courses, schooling, education, finding God they do, they're never going to be able to apply, even when they're 82, to have a little bit of air. Mm -hmm. You're you're going to be creating Rikers Island right in Canada, and Canada cannot permit that, and we never allow a punishment. And this is, again, I think people will have different views of it, and I respect that. We don't allow a punishment where we completely throw away the idea of rehabilitation, as eye-rolling as to some listeners as that would be. And the last part, and this is really it, this is why it could be distilled down into literally what I'm saying, not tooting my own horn, is that the parole board, ladies and gentlemen, will know in 25 years that they are dealing with a Bernardo, a Manassian, a Bissonette. And so for everybody thinking the 25 years means that's their sentence. It's no life means life. And the parole board are not going to make stupid decisions of letting out monstrous serial killers. So everybody take a chill pill, cold comfort to loved ones and the deceased. But that's the thinking as simply as I can explain it. I think you're absolutely right. I think the thinking is, you know what, in law, you can't um, you can't deny them the right to go before a parole board. So we're going to let that happen with the understanding that they're never going to get parole. And I think most of us go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But that does, I mean, we've all heard of people out on parole and said, why the hell was this person out on parole? You know, I mean, so I think it would be understandable to have some Canadians say, I don't know if I have complete faith in the system to make sure that Bernardo, Bissonette, Manassian don't end up out on the street someday. And I'm not so sure Canadians should have full confidence in our system. I think there are many flaws in our system from top to bottom. Generally, the parole board will not let out a Bernardo. Yes, they let out people that go out and reoffend, but the numbers statistically of lifers who are released is infinitesimally small, and even those that are released, there is statistics that the Canadian public should not be outraged. I thought you were going in a different direction about parole hearings, and here's where I would come at it. And, you know, here's the thing about it. I don't know that not any of the nine justices have had family members or loved ones killed by monsters in a mosque or on a street or in a synagogue or in a school, okay? Yep. Yep. There's an element to me. I mean, I haven't had it happen to me, so I consider myself sitting in the ivory tower too. But if you're the relatives or the parents of the ones Paul Bernardo killed or the ones that Bissonette shot up in the mosque yep. or the ones that Manassian ran over, I actually think it's cruel and unusual in a way. I'm, sorry, I'm not being silly, but I'm, I'm using that word for a reason. I think it's cruel and unusual that in 25 years or 22 years, Alec Manassian, just like Paul Bernardo did last year, will apply for parole, even though it's a complete waste of time and an affront. But what happens is all the relatives and loved ones have to drive to Kingston, Ontario, or to Edmonton, sure. Alberta, yeah. and they have to sit there. And look this man in the eye while he does this. That to me, and again, I've never had this happen to me, but I have empathy for those mothers and fathers and children and friends who will sit there and be put through this rigmarole and to say, well, that's in 22 years, grief fades. No, I don't think so. You start talking about families who've had their children and loved ones robbed from them. That is a scar I understand you never heal from. So to me, the balancing here seems a little bit off because I don't think we're a bad country if we say from our Supreme Court and our parliament actually said this, that judges have the discretion to do this. They never had to do it. 
they could choose to do it in certain circumstances. Does it make Canada a bad country if we as Canadians in a democracy say, look, if you shoot up a school like that piece of garbage did in Texas, that you actually don't ever get to breathe the same air as you and I, and maybe we create a jail where we keep these Rikers Island worries that the Supreme Court talks about. Okay, so maybe there's one really, really bad supermax jail in Canada. But that's, to me, the balancing of my training as a lawyer and reading the decision versus being an ordinary, average citizen and political person. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of people would agree with you on that. Uh, Ari, fantastic as always. Thanks so much for your time today. Great to be on with you. That is Ari Goldkind, who is a criminal defense lawyer and a legal commentator, breaking it down. So, yeah, the decision is, uh, and I think Ari's right, it it comes with the assumption that, um, you know, as he says, Paul Bernardo, uh, Alex Bissonnette or or, um, Manassian in in Toronto, uh, who who was charged with uh, 10 counts of first-degree murder, uh, these people will never see the light of day. And the parole board will do what all of us seem to think would be completely and utterly reasonable and, uh, you know, beyond reproach to keep them behind bars. But, you know, like he said, and we've seen it before, right? I mean, uh, Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon. He's never getting out of jail, but constantly goes through parole hearings. Same thing happened. Jody Foster had to go in with the guy that went after. I mean, I mean, it happens. The, the, the Manson family always get parole hearings. And, and yeah, the victims and their families get dragged through it over and over and over and over. Uh, but as Ari said, constitutionally, it does make sense. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.